0: The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. LNG may not be the silver bullet to enable shipping to meet greenhouse gas reduction targets, but there is a groundswell of opinion within the industry that the likes of dual fuel engines and LNG marine fuel could certainly get us some way there. Now, there have been a number of reports looking into the various benefits of LNG as a cleaner, greener step towards decarbonisation. But this week, we have seen the production of a report by the International Council on Clean Transportation, the ICCT. And I'm delighted to say, that joining the podcast this week, I have Brian Comer, uh, one of the authors of those reports. Welcome to the podcast, Brian.
1: Thank you, Richard. Happy to be here.
0: I also have a regular podcast voice, Michelle pizzi Bockman, our Markets Editor. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you, Richard. So, Michelle, let's start with you, if we don't mind. Uh, You were the one who was looking at the detail of this latest report into LNG. Give us a quick overview in terms of why you think this is a significant development. And it's probably going to be one of the big stories, I think, of the year, as far as you're concerned.
2: Well, what piqued my attention here was the fact that um, we've been subjected to many studies now that say that um, LNG is going to provide a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions as a fuel. And this contrasts directly with what has been put forward by the ICCT, which is that really, depending on, on how you slice the science, this is going to offer really no benefit than a normal marine fuel oil. That's why i was interested however i will say that we did invite the lobby groups representing the various um, stakeholders in the lng marine fuel industry to participate in this podcast um clng agreed and peter keller the chairman was put forward and was going to be talking here with brian Exactly an hour before this podcast was recorded, we got a very apologetic public relations company saying they were very sorry. Peter was um, unable to do the interview now. They needed more time to sort of technically respond to everything. And as a result, instead of having a conversation, a full conversation, we've we've got Brian here. So it, that should be put, put on the record.
0: Yes, thank you, Michelle. Right. Um, well, that said, we do have Brian here, and I think we can certainly have an interesting discussion. Brian, could you start us off perhaps with uh, a quick overview of the key findings of this report? Now, I, I should um, point out to the listeners that this is a, uh, a substantial scientific text and that there, there are a significant amount of details. But in terms of the broad conclusion, Brian, give us the overview.
1: We compared the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions of using liquefied natural gas as a marine fuel against conventional marine fuels, including marine gas oil and also the new very low sulfur fuel oil that's been on the market as of January and used in ships. And we found that the maximum life cycle greenhouse gas benefit of using LNG was a 15% reduction compared with using marine gas oil over a hundred year time frame. And note that that's only achieved by ships that are using high pressure dual fuel marine engines and only if the upstream emissions from LNG production are well controlled. And unfortunately, we're seeing new evidence to suggest that the upstream emissions of LNG production are actually higher than previously thought. And so even that maximum 15% benefit is not necessarily guaranteed. Using a 20 year global warming potential, which we argue in our report, better reflects the urgency of reducing greenhouse gas emissions to meet not only the International Maritime Organization's climate goals, but also society's climate goals. We find that there is no benefit from a climate perspective of using liquefied natural gas as a marine fuel regardless of the engine technology that it's used in
0: which is significant when you consider the context of a multi-billion dollar investments over several years in the shipping industry into LNG as a marine fuel now we should point out that you know previous reports have painted a somewhat different picture and I, I, I think we're going to give you the opportunity to go into some depth in terms of why you think it is different but I mean broadly speaking for the non-engineers uh, and the non-chemists listening of which I'm assuming there are going to be quite a few um, reading some of the uh, in-depth discussions on methane slip I had nasty flashbacks to my A-level in chemistry. Could you just give us a broad uh, understandable version of what methane slip is and why it is so significant and why we need to discuss this
1: the first thing that we should understand is that liquefied natural gas consists primarily of methane and methane is a very strong greenhouse gas if you look at how much heat it can trap in the atmosphere over a 20-year time period after it's emitted it traps 86 times more heat than the same amount of carbon dioxide which is why it's particularly worrying if any methane escapes, not only from the marine engines themselves, but also upstream. Turning to a moment for the types of engines that are used in ships that can use LNG. We've got uh, new types of engines that are called dual fuel engines. They're designed to be able to operate on liquefied natural gas, but they can also operate on conventional fuels including marine gas oil, the cleanest um, petroleum-based fuel that we have available for ships today. When the engines are using liquefied natural gas as its fuel source, not all of the methane that's injected into the cylinders is combusted. And when there's unburned methane in the cylinder, uh, it will escape through the exhaust. And that's what we call methane slip depending on which kind of engine you're using, the methane slip is, uh, is less or greater. And we go into detail in the report on the differences between the engine technologies and why uh, some are particularly leaky. The uh, low pressure dual fuel engines inject methane at low pressure as the name implies. And using that t- type of technology less of the methane fuel that's injected into the cylinder, cylinder is combusted, and more of it escapes throughout the exhaust. Mm. And um, so that's why it's particularly um, problematic here, because those low-pressure injection engines, especially the uh, uh, four-stroke variety, are the most popular LNG engine on the market today and are particularly popular... With the new LNG fueled cruise ships that are being uh, built today.
0: And this is key because, uh, you know, it's not often we go into the uh, intricate details of uh, high pressure versus low pressure engine technology on this podcast, but it is significant because I was talking to uh, one of the larger ship owners that is invested in dual fuel technology, uh, as you say, Eastern Pacific Shipping, based out in Singapore. I put it to them this morning when I was talking to them about their investment um, that. You know, this, this, this could be a serious problem. Now, their response is that they have invested uh, a huge amount of time and, and, and money and due diligence into uh, getting the right choices. And to be clear, they are saying that high pressure engines do come in at about 15 to 20 percent uh, of a premium in terms of uh, what you're spending on that. But the result is that you don't get the methane slip in the in the significant uh, way that you are describing in this report so not all engines are equal but what you're saying is that the low pressure engines the one that is you know that are you know routinely being used in in cruise ships like carnival um these are the ones that are going to be problematic can you give us some idea of the sort of um scale and the ratio between these high-pressure engines that are going to be more efficient and, and the low-pressure ones that you think are going to be significantly problematic when it comes to the issues of methane slip?
1: Certainly. We have about 750 LNG-powered ships on the, on the water today, and that's up from uh, just a little over 350 as of 2012. So we've seen about a doubling over the last several years. Of those 750 ships, about uh, 300 of them are using the leakiest engine technology, which is the low-pressure dual-fuel four-stroke engines. And another 50 are using a different kind of low-pressure injection technology, which is the two-stroke version. Uh, It's still extremely leaky, uh, but not quite as leaky as the four-stroke variety. And the high-pressure dual-fuel injection engines, which, as you mentioned, have the lowest amount of methane slip, um, but still some, which is important Mm -hmm. to note, are used in uh, about 90 ships today, including liquefied natural gas carriers, uh, but also in container ships.
0: Okay.
2: Now, I have a question. Just taking things back to to, uh, a wider level, Brian, and that is, You've looked at the other studies in putting together your own. How can you account for such a vastly different conclusions that have been drawn? We have one one study um, being cited as resulting in a a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And here you're saying is that the likelihood is that the the emissions compared to other marine fuels are, are comparable.
1: There are a number of parameters that are important to get right when you're drawing conclusions about the climate impacts of using LNG as a marine fuel. Uh, It relates from everything down to how efficient you assume the engines are, how much methane is escaping upstream, how much methane is slipping from the engines. But one of the most important differences between studies and their the conclusions especially that are drawn amongst them including that um, produced by ThinkStep and our own study is which global warming potential are, is the study going to draw its conclusions about the climate impacts of using the fuel we reported results using both hundred year global warming potential and 20 year global warming potential academic studies um, use a 100 year global warming potential as their baseline. This enables a comparison across studies. And in our literature review, where we looked at over 35 different cases on upstream emissions, for example, we compared them against a 100 year uh, global warming potential. Uh, but we should also note that there's a 20 year global warming potential, which is more relevant for making decisions on climate policy that will impact the uh, trajectory of future warming and also is more relevant to helping policymakers make decisions that reduce uh, the effects of using high greenhouse gas fuels in the short term like methane.
2: And so why do you believe that the IMO should regulate methane given that It's only really seen as a transitional fuel as we move to um, zero carbon fuels post like 2030 into 2040
1: 50. As you know, the International Maritime Organization does not yet regulate methane emissions from ships. And why it's important that the IMO start regulating methane is because, as uh, Richard pointed out, we're talking about Billion-dollar investments in some cases that are designed to last for 20 to 30 years to get a good return on investment and The decisions that are being made today in an unregulated environment Will have implications on how much greenhouse gases are being emitted from the sector and if uh, the shipping industry does transition to liquefied natural gas starting today by 2050 we're still going to have liquefied natural gas ships on the water, which is the latest date that the industry should be at zero emissions if we want to avoid the most damaging impacts of climate change and have any chance of meeting the Paris Agreement temperature goals.
0: And I, I think that is a, you know an important point to make to the listeners, because while methane is not uh, in detail on the agenda at the IMO... I think it's worth noting the last MEPC, the Marine Environment Protection Committee, instructed the next two intersessional meetings at the IMO, which are going to take place uh, in next one in April. Um, and I'm quoting here to consider measures on operational energy efficiency on reduction of methane slip and emissions of volatile organic compounds. So, you know, this is very much an issue that is, um, I would say, within the sites of the IMO. It is uh, an issue that they are aware of. I mean, what's your feeling in terms of the substantive nature of the discussion? Would you assume that if the IMO is tackling greenhouse gas as a holistic um, problem, that methane is inevitably going to be regulated at an IMO level sooner or later?
1: Yes. I think that the IMO, by its initial greenhouse gas strategy, has set a clear signal that greenhouse gas emissions, not carbon dioxide, but total greenhouse gas emissions, their vision is to eliminate them as soon as possible this century, and also to do it in a way that's consistent with achieving the Paris Agreement temperature goals. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, methane certainly must be addressed, and not just carbon dioxide. And we should also remember that burning liquefied natural gas still emits a substantial amount of carbon dioxide, so in no stretch of the imagination should LNG be considered a low carbon or low CO2 fuel.
0: I, th- I think it's a, it's a really interesting point because while we are talking about the you know the specifics of methane, the the wider concern within the debate at the IMO right now is um, you know almost this Newtonian law of uh, you know equal and opposite reactions. When you when you address one issue, for example, sulfur. Um, You know, if if you're not careful, you uh, create other problems. You know, the reality is that scrubbers, in order to meet sulfur reduction, you know, have resulted in some ships burning more fuel in order to supply power to those scrubbers. Uh, You know, when the IMO is setting these uh, goals, they do them in quite an isolated way. Now, I noted in your report that uh, some of the future work you are suggesting is around methane slip as a, a function of engine load. And you make the point that the move towards slow steaming that we have seen as an industry wide phenomenon largely in response to fuel price initially but you know also as a way of reducing co2 that could actually be exacerbating in some circumstances the um, the production of methane and you know we we, we don't often think about it in, in those holistic terms
1: this is a very important point both the think step study and the icct study estimated methane slip emissions from the engines, assuming that they operate according to uh, the engine loads that are outlined in IMO regulations. And those engine load patterns are meant to reflect how ships typically operate. And they assume that ships are operating most of the time using 75% of the Installed power of their marine en- of their marine engines, and depending on the type of ship, uh, ships are operating well away from that optimal load point. And in the case of container ships, especially, uh, they're uh, operating at extremely slow speeds compared to their historical average, and compared to what the engines that they have installed are designed to do. And um, if ships are operating uh, off cycle, as we would call it, then um, the actual methane slip emissions from the engines are likely higher than what we uh, estimate in our study. And so uh, operating slower and slow steaming actually has the potential to increase methane emissions beyond what we've estimated here. One question I think uh, that will be posed is, okay, if it looks like the evidence is suggesting that investing in liquefied natural gas is not a climate solution and should not be done, then what is the solution, given that we have few fuel options on the uh, table available today? And I would say that if I were a ship owner today deciding how to invest in a new ship and what type of engine and fuel system to install, that – instead of investing in liquefied natural gas, dual fuel engines, and also let's not forget the uh, type of unique fuel tanks that need to be installed on the ship in order to um, contain the LNG for use as the fuel, that I would uh, be purchasing an internal combustion engine. Uh, not because um, I, I think that um, continuing to invest in fossil fuels is uh, necessarily the best option for the climate. But in the international shipping industry, until things are regulated and legally binding, then it's very difficult for ship owners to take unilateral action that um, might make it so that they are uh, less competitive and can't survive. And so investing in um, an internal combustion engine at least gives the opportunity for using different kinds of fuels in the future uh, including um, fuels that are made from renewable sources. Whereas if you invest in the LNG infrastructure, really you've locked yourself in to using methane as a fuel for the life of the, of the ship. Uh, LNG is from fossil sources and the sources available for uh, bio LNG and for synthetic LNG. Um, we have serious uh, questions about their availability their supply and also their price competitiveness uh, compared to other fuels. And so it seems like investing in energy saving technologies for the ship to reduce how much energy the ship uses, uh, including drag reduction technologies like hull air lubrication, uh, installing wind assisted propulsion, those types of technologies can reduce how much energy is consumed by the ship and how much fuel is being used. And also preparing for the transition to zero-emission vessels, so preparing for um, using fuels like ammonia, hydrogen, hydrogen fuel cells, um, and also uh, batteries. We're seeing new evidence that um, batteries for deep-sea shipping may not be as far-fetched as we once thought.
2: Well, this is a very, very interesting um, podcast for ship owners contemplating investment in LNG technology, I think, and um, one that is going to warrant further debate at the IMO and also outside with all these different studies.
0: Absolutely. And uh, as Michelle has already alluded to, Uh, We remain open to uh, any further guests who uh, might wish to come and challenge some of these uh, claims on the podcast. So uh, perhaps we will yet see a response from CNN. You never know.
2: Let's hope so. We're ready and waiting.
0: Uh, For now, Brian Comer, thank you very much for joining the lawyers of this podcast.
2: Thank you, Brian.
1: Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Michelle.